Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. As the Russian war against Ukraine intensifies, medical workers from around the world are answering the call to help. Among them is Dr. Matthew Wilkes, a University of New Mexico assistant professor who serves as medical director at the Sandoval Regional Medical Center in Rio Rancho. Wilkes belongs to Team Rubicon, an international disaster relief organization. He previously deployed with the group to Mozambique after a powerful cyclone killed more than a thousand people and triggered mass flooding. He also went to Puerto Rico following Hurricane Maria in 2017. Days after the Russian invasion of Ukraine in late February, Dr. Wilkes headed for Poland to meet with international officials. He then moved to Ukraine. I caught up with him last Friday, March 11th, from Lviv, near the Polish border. This is University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm speaking to Dr. Matthew Wilkes, a UNM assistant professor and medical director at the Sandoval Regional Medical Center. He spoke to me on March 11th from Lviv, Ukraine, where he was volunteering with Team Rubicon, an international disaster relief organization. Dr. Wilkes, thanks for joining me on University Showcase. So things are moving very quickly in this war. We're talking on Friday, March 11th. I'm airing this a week from now. And it is evening there. What has your day been like? So my day started with air raid alarms because there was shelling about 100 miles from here. Uh, And so what that involved, I'm in a dormitory at the Ukrainian Catholic University. And so um, there are refugees here. There are families and there are students. And so we all headed down into the basement, into the corridors, under the dormitory. Uh, there were people there that I would say were probably in their 80s and newborns. Uh, there were people with their dogs and people with their cats and uh, people very blurry eyed because it was early in the morning. How long have you been there? I arrived on the 7th. And how have things changed since you first arrived? Those are the first air raid alarms that I've heard uh, or had to respond to. So that's a change. Um, The city um, seems to have more roadblocks now on the roads uh, and checkpoints where they're checking passports. And who are you working with on the ground there? Uh, So I am affiliated with Team Rubicon. Uh, That's the organization that I came here with, and we are working with the World Health Organization, with the UN, and with a local hospital. And what kinds of other professionals are there with you? In my group, we have physicians, nurses, paramedics. We have some behavioral health professionals, uh, and then a a support team that's made made up of people who do logistics and tech and all the things to support us. So I'm actually in the advanced team, which is not my usual role with Team Rubicon, but I'm making the connections with the UN and the World Health Organization and the hospital. But the other people here with me are making the connections because we have to feed our group, we have to have transportation, you know, lodging and all those things. So we're working with a lot of different organizations here. How is Team Rubicon supported? Who funds it? Team Rubicon is uh, entirely supported by donations. It's a 501c3 corporation that was created uh, 11 years ago following the earthquake in Haiti when a group of veterans 
American veterans uh, responded to that and saw a need for creating an organization where people could get in very quickly to help uh, in times of disaster or catastrophe. And now it's grown to a group that has over 150,000 volunteers. Oh, my gosh. That's a lot. How did you get involved with them? So my first experience with Team Rubicon was responding to uh, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico in 2017. Uh, And I just heard about the organization from other people in my department at UNM. uh, And I volunteered for that. And that really whetted my appetite. Um, And so since then, I've been to uh, Mozambique, uh, to Haiti back in August when there was the earthquake there, and now this trip. Um, I understand that you all had originally were going to set up in Poland, which is getting a ton of refugees, but that wasn't initially successful, so you decided to go into Ukraine? Well, and it wasn't because it wasn't successful. It's because Poland has done a fantastic job of addressing the needs of the um, more than a million people who've uh, ended up there. When they cross the border, um, there are warming stations for them because it's cold here. You know, it's winter in in, uh, Northern Europe and they have hot food for people. They have groceries for people. They have donated clothes and they have lots of people there who are taking them into their homes, just driving them away from the border. And so we identified that the real need uh, is on the Ukrainian side. They're waiting in long lines to get across the border. They've been traveling for days. They've been out in the cold. Uh, People are dehydrated. Uh, They're exhausted. They have cold exposure and hypothermia. So we really identified that the need was on this side of the border. This is the largest city close to the border where we could find accommodation. Uh, So when we do go out, when the team arrives this weekend, we'll have to commute each day. So our plan is to set up um, an aid station right at the border. And then we are what's called uh, EMT uh, type one mobile unit. And so we're mobile. We have uh, backpacks full of um, IVs, IV fluids, medications. And so we'll be walking the line and finding people who may not even realize that they're in distress and, and helping them. You've gone to a number of places with Team Rubicon. Is this the first time you've been in a conflict zone? I would say this is the first time I've been in a hot war. Mm-hmm. So um, when I was in Haiti, you know, there's a lot of conflict there. And I felt like there was, you know, a heightened sense of our security element there. I think that maybe there's some physical danger here. Um, But I don't feel like there's any danger from the people. Everybody's been so fantastic, uh, extremely warm, extremely friendly on both sides of the border. This is University Showcase on KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm speaking to Dr. Matthew Wilkes, a UNM assistant professor and medical director at the Sandoval Regional Medical Center. He volunteered with Team Rubicon, an international disaster organization, and spoke to me on March 11th from Lviv, Ukraine. What are you hearing from the Ukrainians? What was their reaction to you arriving? I'd love to hear what you've been talking about with them. Yeah, so the Ukrainians are exceptionally appreciative. They've really welcomed us with open arms and thanked us. um, And people have been volunteering their time and 
supporting us very much. I've heard stories about Ukrainians volunteering in all kinds of ways, including to be volunteer medics. Are any of those folks working with you? No, we we haven't had any people like that join us, but um, we have had a lot of outreach actually from uh, Ukrainian Americans helping us. They've helped us make connections here. So that's actually been extremely important. People you've been talking to, are they planning to leave the country permanently or are they just trying to get out now? It's just all very uncertain, I guess. Yeah, so the majority of people uh, really want to just come back home mm-hmm. after they leave and they want to come home quickly. Uh, so what we found in Poland was that some people did not want to be moved away from the border because they were expecting this to be a short conflict and be able to return home to their families and their lives and you know what they know. Uh, so unfortunately, it looks like that's not going to be the case and they may be displaced for a lot longer. And everybody's focusing on the people who've crossed the borders, but the most recent UN numbers are that there are probably one and a half million internally displaced people at this point, and that number is going to grow even more. Do you think you'll see a lot of those folks where you are? Yeah, I think we'll we'll definitely see them in Lviv. Again, we're in the western side of the country, and so people are moving to this area from, from the east. How long do you think you all will be there? What is the typical run for Team Rubicon? So it really depends on the need. Uh, we're currently looking at between one and three months, depending on how long the conflict Uh, continues and how long the humanitarian crisis continues. And in terms of, you described a little bit what you can do with the mobile backpacks. I mean, are you going so far as to like performing surgery, doing things like that? So we don't perform surgery, but one of the important things that I'm doing while I'm here is uh, establishing where to transfer patients who require care that's more advanced than what we can do in the field. And so the hospitals, at least in Lviv right now, are not overwhelmed. And so we can transport people here. Um, There's another organization, Samaritan's Purse, that is setting up uh, what's called a type 3 EMT. And that includes ORs and ICU, labor and delivery. And so they're currently setting that up. I, I visited that yesterday. It's a pretty impressive operation. It's like a mobile hospital? It is. Wow. Okay. Uh, Unfortunately, we've seen this week that those facilities are not immune to attack. It was a horrible attack in Mariupol on the uh, maternity hospital. Are you all concerned about that? Yeah, concerned, but, you know, not overly so. At at the moment, the fighting is not near here. But, for example, at the uh, Samaritan's Purse uh, mobile hospital, it's inflatable tents but they were building essentially bomb shelters in there. So I know it's hard to, no one has a crystal ball. Do you have a sense of what will happen in the next week or so? I don't, but my concern is that the fighting will move closer to here and that we may end up actually having to treat uh, people who are wounded as opposed to uh, just with their chronic medical problems and their problems related to moving. And I think you also have some child psychologists joining your team. Is that right? 
Yes, that's true. Um, we have child uh, psychiatry, pediatrics, and labor and delivery OBGYN uh, people with us because that's a significant need in the population that's moving because men between the ages of 18 and 60 are not allowed to leave. So this is primarily women and children. So are you starting to see a lot of that trauma as people are fleeing to places like Lviv? I haven't seen physical trauma yet, um, but certainly emotional trauma. You know, when I pass people in the line, you can just see the devastation in their eyes, the heartbreak. What makes you want to do this work? You know, it's just, I have been an emergency physician for 25 years. And one of the things that ER doctors do is they treat people in need at a moment's notice. And I think that through Team Rubicon, I'm able to bring that to far off places. And there are people in need, and this is just such an overwhelming humanitarian crisis right now, um, that there is a huge need for people to provide care here. Uh, and so it's just hard for me to watch things like this and not want to get involved. This is University Showcase on KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm speaking to Dr. Matthew Wilkes, a UNM assistant professor and medical director at the Sandoval Regional Medical Center. He volunteered with Team Rubicon, an international disaster organization, and spoke to me on March 11th from Lviv, Ukraine. How is Team Rubicon different than, for instance, Doctors Without Borders or other groups? Yeah, so actually we're very significantly different from somebody like Samaritan's Purse or Doctors Without Borders because they send a, set up permanent locations. I mean, they're temporary, but they're, they're fixed locations. And so what Team Rubicon is, it's a World Health Organization, EMT, which is Emergency Medical Team, type one mobile. So there are type one fixed also where they go and they set up a little tent, but it's one location. And the thing about our international response with Team Rubicon is that we're a mobile team. And so we um, bring all of our supplies. We bring our food, we bring tents, we bring all of our medications, and we are very mobile. And so that's one of the things that I really like about it. So for example, in um, Puerto Rico, you know, I put on a backpack with about 50 pounds of um, supplies in it and headed out into the jungle to find people who were cut off, who needed care, who might be out of their blood pressure medicine or might have injuries or whatever it was. And so that's what Team Rubicon's role is, is to get in early and be able to be mobile. That's impressive. So you have to tr- you have to be a really fit person to be in this organization. You're carrying a 50-pound pack. It definitely pack. helps. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you prepare to be somewhere for that long and bring enough supplies and food, especially food? Yeah, so we carry a lot of MREs, mm. which uh, are not the tastiest of meals, but they're very nutritious, a lot of calories. And we take probably 2,000 uh, pounds or more uh, of supplies with us. We all carry this. We don't carry it all on our back, uh, obviously, but <laughs> we set up a, a location and then resupply each day. For Obviously, for something that's three months long, we can't bring all our supplies. Mm-hmm. But each uh, wave of individuals who's uh, serving on the mission brings resupplies for us. 
Do you have a sense of the medical supply situation where you are? It sounded pretty dire in Mariupol, for example. Yeah, so things here are pretty good. The hospitals say that they have everything that they need. They're also saying that the grocery stores are fine and that there is no strain, but that is not what I've seen. Um, most of the shelves are not barren, but they're pretty well picked through. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about what you're seeing on the ground since you've been there, just a sense of how people are doing? Yeah, I think that um, it's interesting because people, there are so many people and so many people in transit that, so for example, the uh, main train station here is just overwhelmed with the number of people. And so there's been a lot of local outpouring of support, people providing clothes, people carrying luggage for people, things like that. Uh, So it's really been a sense of community here, which is good to see. Uh, What would you like people to know right now about what's going on about Ukraine? I think that the most important thing to know is um, what I see when I see the people. And that is, when I watch this on the news, it does not give you a proper sense of what's going on. Hmm. When I walk by these people, when I see them, they are individuals and they have families, they have their children, their parents, their siblings, and this is affecting their lives in a way that if you haven't gone through it, you don't understand. And so what I want everybody to know is that this is a huge humanitarian tragedy that was unnecessary completely irrational, and it's destroying millions of people's lives. It's going to affect these children for the rest of their lives, uh, the adults, everybody. It's just an unmitigated tragedy. How do you keep hope and when you go into situations like this? Well, the, the hope really comes from seeing all the other people here helping. The communities, there is certainly resilience here, and I do think that there is hope. You know, we're working with a lot of other organizations from the UK, from Canada, uh, from Poland. Uh, People are coming from all over. And so that's what gives me hope is that there are people not only with the desire to help, but the ability to help. And they're here. How would you say people over here can help? What's the greatest need? I recommend that people find a charity that they like, that they feel like they can support. And if they're doing work here, then I recommend making a donation there. So you'll come back to uh, New Mexico, to the Sandoval Regional Medical Center. Are you the only one from UNM doing this or you have colleagues? Uh, I'm the only one that I know of who's doing this right now, but I'm sure we have other Team Rubicon folks involved or other folks involved with Team Rubicon, but I'm the only one here from UNM that I'm aware of. What do you anticipate bringing back with you in terms of what you've learned, perhaps what you've learned when you've gone to other locations with Team Rubicon? How does that inform what you're doing back here in your regular job? Well, I think that it does give me more global perspective, and I am able to bring things that I've learned here, see how things are organized, how different medical systems are organized, and I can bring that knowledge back to UNM and and help teach emergency medicine residents and other residents, uh, that this isn't the only way to do things and that there is a a bigger picture. Very interesting. Is there anything else I didn't ask that you want to add? 
I just really appreciate you taking the time to um, tell this story because, again, I think it's a really important one. People have to understand that these are real people and real lives. Well, I appreciate you taking time to talk to me, and I hope you will stay safe. Thank you. Thank you for talking with us, Dr. Wilkes. My pleasure. That was Dr. Matthew Wilkes volunteering in Lviv, Ukraine with Team Rubicon. He's an assistant professor at the University of New Mexico and is medical director at the Sandoval Regional Medical Center. Dr. Wilkes is back home safe in New Mexico. Team Rubicon continues its work in Lviv, which continues to take in Ukrainians from the eastern part of the country fleeing the war. NPR reports three million have left their homes. Lviv's mayor is calling for more international help as the city welcomes a growing number of refugees. Russian forces this week launched airstrikes to the south and north of Lviv and on a military base just 30 miles from the city center. The director of the World Health Organization said displacement and overcrowding caused by people fleeing fighting are likely to increase the risks of diseases such as COVID-19, measles, pneumonia, and polio. The WHO chief also told the United Nations Security Council on Thursday that it has verified 43 attacks on hospitals and health facilities, with 12 people killed and 34 injured. The Russian invasion is now in its fourth week. And also this week, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said drought conditions across more than half the U.S. will likely continue through at least June. This comes on the heels of news that the mega drought we have experienced for the past 22 years in the Southwest is the worst in over 1,200 years. Research points to human-caused climate change as a major culprit. And it reminded me of a previous interview I did on this program with journalist Laura Paskus about her book, At the Precipice, New Mexico's Changing Climate. Here's a clip. You know, scientists have pointed to what could happen as it continued to warm. And here in New Mexico, we see those forecasts just playing out right before our very eyes. We also have populations and and issues in the state that already face so many challenges, whether that's poverty or access to fair and equitable education and healthcare and all of those sorts of things. And really climate change exacerbates so many of those problems in sort of increasing disparities between populations, but also climate change compounds so many of the the problems that we are already grappling with as a state. What are the biggest impacts we're seeing now that will continue to get worse? I think the biggest impact is is truly our water resources. We live in an arid region. We're accustomed to dealing with drought and poor conditions. But in the past, we've always had groundwater to rely upon. People like to look back to the 1950s and the drought that New Mexicans experienced back then. We got through that drought by pumping groundwater. When that drought ended, instead of being like, okay, Let's leave that water as sort of a savings account. We just continue to pump and develop and do more and more. So, you know, we're kind of facing these increasingly warm and dry conditions, and we don't have that savings account in many places of groundwater to rely upon. So I really think water is sort of the biggest issue that we really need to confront head on. How will this all change New Mexico culturally, economically, from a health perspective? If we don't 
address climate change, if we don't take it seriously in terms of both cutting greenhouse gas emissions to slow continued warming and to address adaptation, you know, we really could see New Mexico continue to have a hard time facing many of our challenges where you see power and wealth consolidated in the hands of fewer and fewer people where you have fewer and fewer people making decisions that benefit the state as a whole. So there's kind of like that side of things that that is a very real future. But I also, I like you, I love New Mexico and I love New Mexico's communities. And I think that we have a really strong track record of resilience and creativity when it comes to survival in the desert. And so New Mexicans do have great care for the environment, thought for the future, and really, really care about the survival of one another. So I think one very possible future for New Mexico is that we do creatively address these solutions that also rely on knowledge and expertise that that so many of our tribal and Hispanic and Spanish communities have already. We could be leading the world right now in figuring out these things, right? <laughs> yeah. So Dr. Jonathan Overpeck, who is is like a person I talk to frequently for the book, is something he has talked about is how the southwestern United States could be leading the way on water scarcity, on energy, on all of these issues and and helping set the standard, helping drive innovation, really leading the way. And and so far, we're not. But I really, I think that we still can. You have a sort of mantra in the book. I'm going to quote, cultural expectations are abandoned with difficulty. People try to persist until too late. Social conflict and breakdown make the economy worse. And migration is the ultimate solution to climate change. How do you think about this in the context of New Mexico? Yeah, so, you know, I was at this talk that Dr. Eric Blinman was giving as an archaeologist, which is, you know, what my first career was in that field. And as he was talking about, you know, kind of how prehistorically people adapted or didn't adapt to climate change, he's talking about this. I'm like, holy smokes, he's talking about us right now. And really looking at those four points of his it's hard to talk about adaptation. It's hard to talk about where we should and shouldn't live. And it's really hard to talk about that when those decisions are being made beyond the community level. As a society, as a culture of New Mexicans, we need to really think about what we need to change in order to have a sustainable future. And one of the conversations where that really needs to happen is in the agricultural community. We all kind of associate New Mexico's agricultural community with, you know, green chili or small farms. That's not necessarily where the change needs to happen. I mean, obviously, what you do on your individual farm does matter, but it's really in the ways in which water is distributed and allocated in these big irrigation districts like the middle Rio Grande Conservancy District or the Elephant View Irrigation District. We need to be looking at really systemic change in how agriculture works in New Mexico. That that could be a third rail for anyone (laughs) in politics. (laughs) It really could be. And I feel like sometimes what happens when we talk about the need for this 
this really big change in how systems are operated, it's really easy for some people to hijack that conversation and say, you're anti-farmer or you're anti-farming and you're attacking small farmers. And that's not what I've heard anybody do. Thinking about how we more efficiently but equitably use water in our agricultural system is a is a big conversation that is not an attack on small farmers. And so I hope that we can move away kind of from these old arguments and narratives. And that was just a bit of a previous interview I did with journalist Laura Paskus about her book, At the Precipice, New Mexico's Changing Climate. You can find a link to today's show and all our previous shows at KUNM.org. And just a reminder, next week is our spring fundraiser. This content is possible because of listeners like you. Please help by donating now at KUNM.org. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thanks for listening to University Showcase.